Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. All right, Patrick, we're back, man. And this is actually, I think, um, I I might be wrong on this. I'll have to ask my media team. They're going to yell at me for this one. But I think this might be the very first Q&A episode that we air like like initially like with the same exact week as our podcast on our YouTube channel. So if anybody hasn't joined our YouTube channel, that's my shameless plug. But uh, they can see our beautiful faces and interact with us in that way. So, hey, welcome to YouTube, Patrick. you're, You're familiar with it, but welcome to YouTube. Yeah, great stuff. 2022 with a bang. Let's see how this one goes, huh? <laughs> That's I think, right, I think this is going to be a year of resiliency because um, now that the uncertainty of COVID is over, there's other uncertainties kicking in. Even adapting, how do you adapt back to normal life? There's always something yeah, going on, sure. isn't it? It's like Winston Churchill, when he was asked, he said, what's history? And he said, history is one damn thing after another. And I think it was actually <laughs> Mark Twain that quoted it before that. So, so yeah, let's yeah, go with this one. For sure. Dude, it is absolutely going to be the year of resiliency. It has to be. Um, like it actually, like it actually has to be because uh, the one thing that I fear as a you know owner of a health tech company that specializes in stress resiliency, and then also too as a as a health psychologist, and then even more so as a human being, is that we have seen such a detrimental detrimental impact just in all facets, but especially among the mental health front, um, and I would say physiological front as well. I saw research which was super fascinating to me that within the millennial age group which I believe they categorized from age 25 to 40. I might be wrong on that, so don't fact check me. Uh, But they said that since the start of the pandemic, the average weight gain since the start has been 40 pounds. 40 pounds. Like that's incredible to me. And you stack that on top of, you know, social social isolation and the mental health effects. Like it's uh it's scary. So this has to be the year of stress resiliency. This has to be the year of resiliency just to begin with. Um it could, because if it's not, like we are going to dig ourselves in an even bigger hole than what we're in now. So, hey, that's what we're here for, right, man? We're here to spread the good news of how you become more resilient. That's it. And I suppose we have an added advantage that, well, certainly in mine, we have a few extra years in he- ahead of the millennials. So we can talk about the tools that we came across when we were 20 and 25 years of age. And I have That's to right. say, Jay, they've stood the test of time 30 years on. Yeah. They really, really have. Right. And, you know, right. I, I just think that going through formal education for 16 years and you have this piece of paper at the end of it, but yet you don't necessarily have mastery over your mind or mastery over concentration or any, any resilience to deal with mm. what, what life is throwing at you. So, so yeah, so this is going to be an interesting conversation, like always. Yeah. 
Yeah, Leah, like 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 always. You know, it's one of those things too that you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And so our goal here to, is just to help people be guided, lead to water. We kind of sometimes like in, in our company at Hanu, we refer to ourselves as attempting to at least be like the Yoda. So it's like, we're not making you do something, but we're really trying to guide you to it. Uh, maybe there's a stick over the head every once in a while. But for the most part, we're like, hey, we just want to provide that good education. We want to give you something practical. We want to give you tools and then you use it. And I like what you said in regards to utilizing things that have stood the test of time, both from a scientific research-based perspective, but then also too, just anecdotally for people. And, you know, I go back to the core basics. Like one of my things that I tell people on every type of podcast that I do is that we have to implement like basics before we start trying to biohack things. And that's the biggest problem with our modern day society of health optimization is people are like, well, how can I biohack it? What can I buy? Um, like, what kind of tangible tool do I have? And I'm like, Hmm. Are you practicing breath work? Are you practicing interoception? Are you practicing mindfulness? Like, are you exercising? Are you eating well? It's like, it's so easy and sexy and fancy to like engage in some of these biohacks, but the things that have stood the test of time and will continue to do so are those core basic foundations. And so, you know, I beat the, but the drum on health technology and how helpful that can be, but I more so beat the drum on utilizing the things that are easy to access are there all the time. And one of the big ones is breathing. For sure. And you know what comes to mind there? You're talking about the rush towards tangible objects because people can see them and people can feel them and wear them and try them and, you know, get results, well, get feedback from them. But even within breath work, you could consider that there's the invisible form of breathing and there's a visible form of breathing. And the one that's actually taken off is the one that's, it's readily visible. You know, you see 10 different or 15, 20 people inside in a studio and you can see them hyperventilating and doing long breath holds and hearing their breathing and filling their lungs full of air. What attention would, would it receive if you have 20 people in a studio and you hear nothing and you see nothing? But yet, that breathing technique could even be more powerful than the hyperventilation and the long breath holds. And that's an interesting one in terms of Western society. Is everything we chase, you know, sometimes the subtlety is the key and sometimes the most basic is the key. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I haven't really kind of conceptualized it or thought about it in that way, but it's a, it's a, it's a really good point. So, you know, this is going to be a year hopefully for people where they turn to kind of those basics. They turn to that level, high level of mindfulness. They turn to that level of just allowing the body and mind to be at ease. And then hopefully, and then my kind of wish, my prayer, honestly, is that we reintegrate into the sense of community that we've lost. I mean, again, that is probably what I've seen as being kind of the biggest detriment over the past two years has been this removal that we've had from community, uh, the shaming that we've had on, on all sorts of sides. Like it's just an awful, ugly thing. So if we can get back to this subtle way of living where we're engaged in community, we're connecting with our breathing, we're being with others who are connecting to our breathing. That's a beautiful synergistic thing. And people are probably like, oh, Jay's about to go into the Kumbaya right now because <laughs> it's, it's what it sounds like. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's, it holds truth. Yeah, for sure. And again, changing from one form to another, the best place to start is, is that small step. So, yeah, you know, yeah. if people even feel intimidated going, because I'm an introvert by heart. And, you know, I remember going to conferences 
And I was staying in the hotel room, to be honest with you, I didn't want to talk to anybody because I'm the yeah. one, you know, my own space is important. And I'd have Mark Moore on the phone ringing me up, missing that I'm missing all of these marketing opportunities <laughs> that I'm hiding away in my room. And that's, you know, but it's something that when you do want to kind of, it's very important to put yourself out there, but don't see it as a monumental task. Don't see it sure. that it literally scares the life out of you. Um, that yeah. maybe if you say yeah. to yourself, well, listen, I'm going to go down for five minutes and I commit right. to five minutes. And at five minutes, yeah. then you can make the choice either to stay there or to go back to the room. But at least you've mm-hmm. dipped your toe into the water. And I think it's the mm-hmm. same with breath work as well, because there's so many different challenges and everything is consuming different people's different time. Even practice this for two minutes and see where it takes yeah. you. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I think the last time we were on a podcast, I talked about uh, this idea of, you know, even even just like starting with one second, right? You're like, I'll start with one second and then we'll just see, like, will that carry me to two, to five, to 10? I, I, I love that concept. And actually within Hanu, we're trying to build something and incorporate something like that into what we are building. And again, I still have to be a little bit cryptic, I know, but not for long though. It's going to be very soon. Um, but I, I just like the idea of like, if you can set aside one second, which no one's going to argue with me. If you try to argue with me that you can't set aside one second, like whatever, like you're dead to me. Not really, but you, you could set aside one second. What I think though, is that like people just need sometimes like to be asked to do it and, and, and then they have to say, okay, well, I've been asked, let me engage in one second. So I'll leave everybody with bated breath on what I'm talking about, but that's what we're trying to do at Hanu. Yeah. yeah one second. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that's an interesting one about being asked to do it. There's two, two guys here at the moment are, they're builders and one works, he coaches a lot of teams and he was talking mm-hmm. about getting a strength and conditioning coach into the club. You bring in a strength and conditioning coach, not necessarily to devise a program for the players, because you can find a program online. But you bring right. in a strength and conditioning coach to watch every aspect of the players, to go into the gyms, mm-hmm. to make sure that the guys... So really, it's kind of changed. It's not necessarily that you're hiring somebody for the information, but you're hiring somebody almost not necessarily forcing the 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 student to put it into practice, but that drive for the student to put it into practice and staying on top of them. And I think the student, or at least many students, do actually need it. That they know themselves that they're not going to do it unless somebody is on top of them. Constant reminders. And it it is that aspect, you know, that I suppose another in terms of tapping into in, in terms of breath work, building that community of of individuals that you feel that there's a responsibility because now it's a tribe. Mm-hmm. It's no longer an individual yeah. and yeah. commitment to the tribe as opposed to just commitment to yourself. And it does drive everybody forward. Yeah, it leads to strong motivation. I mean, because it's not that we're just letting ourselves down because sometimes we can kind of just give ourselves a pass. We're like, eh, I let myself down. It's okay. I've done it a million times. But when you start to leave uh, uh, or leave the tribe down, that's when it can hit at the core. And that, again, I think that tells us a lot about who we are as, as beings, right? We are very relationally oriented. And I know there could be some introverts out there who are like, well, I don't know about that. No, it's just, again, introversion, extroversion is all about where we derive our energy from, right? But I think all of us like or have this innate draw to some sense of community and some sense of tribalism uh, in, in a way. And I use that word a little bit loosely because I know it's a kind of a sticky term, but we do and we have our tribe. And when we feel like we're going to let down the tribe, then it hits us at our core sometimes. So 
Totally agree with you, Patrick. Well, I love, uh, I always love our, our banter at the beginning here. I'm going to shift us now over into one of today's topics. So first thing is, and let me speak to those on YouTube, those who are listening to the podcast, welcome, like, subscribe, hit that bell, all the other things that we say here. Uh, and then if you are a podcast listener, which is probably most of you, uh, feel free to get on that Apple podcast, give us a like. We would really, really appreciate that. That's how people come to us and how we reach more people. So thanks again. If you're new to the Hanu Health Podcast, welcome. This is Patrick McCune. I'm Jay Wiles. We co-host every single month the Q&A of the Hanu Health Podcast, where you as listeners can submit your questions to us on all things HRV, breath work, oxygen advantage, you name it. In, the, in regards to stress resiliency, we answer it. One of the things that Patrick and I like to do is we take a subject at the beginning before we get into listener submitted questions and we banter on it and give you our thoughts and ideas. And a lot of these topics will actually come out of questions that are posed to us or just kind of reoccurring themes that we hear about. And so we are here to talk about that now. So Patrick, I want to go ahead and turn to a topic area that is probably presented to me um, as the second most presented question or topic area, because I think stress resiliency, heart rate variability typically is the first one that comes to me. But the second one is this idea of sports performance and how can we utilize stress resiliency and how can we utilize things like breath work to improve sports performance? And this goes kind of all across the gamut, right? People are like, should, you know, we use breath holds while we're engaging in sports? Like, can that be helpful? Is that detrimental? Like, should we do things prior to sports? after sports, like for recovery, like what can I do in order to utilize breathwork training, enhance my stress resiliency to make me a better athlete or to recover better? So I'm assuming that's probably something that you get asked about a fair amount. Yeah. Breath holds are really, really interesting. And because there's different variations of it, you know, do you hyperventilate and then hold your breath? Do you breathe in and hold your breath? Do you breathe out and hold your breath? How long do you hold your breath for? One of the, the exercises that we've been using well, pretty much over the last 20 years was we started off with kids and because children aren't necessarily going to understand slow breathing. But at the same time, we wanted to reduce their chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. So in short, we, we would have a child coming in maybe with asthma and the child is breathing with a relatively fast respiratory rate. And their airways are, are narrowed, and that's bringing on their symptoms. And also, they have a stuffy nose. So one of the easiest ways to help open up the nose for the kid and help with bronchodilation was to have that child take a normal breath in and out through the nose, pinch their nose and hold, and walk a number of paces holding their breath. And then to let go and breathe in and, and normal breathe. We practiced that with children as young as four years of age, with hundreds mm -hmm. and hundreds of kids. Mm -hmm. With the oxygen advantage changed it in order to be able to have breath holding during physical movement. And I remember when I was working with some Notre Dame athletes, they were 400 meter sprinters and they were at a very, very high level. And we had them do a sprinting with their mouth open and monitoring their blood oxygen saturation. Their blood oxygen saturation with mouth breathing during the sprint would drop down to probably about 94, 93%, just on the verge of hypoxia. And if I had them sprint with the mouth closed, it dropped down to about 91%. So going mm -hmm. into mild hypoxia. But if we had them jog with breath holding, we could drop them down into the low 80s. Oftentimes, breath holding after an exhalation is overlooked because athletes feel that they have to be doing something so strenuous, you know, severe physical training in order to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis 
and to reduce the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide. For those of you who mightn't understand, what is the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide? When you do physical exercise, or even when you're breathing at rest, the primary drive to breathe is the gas carbon dioxide. And if you have a high sensitivity to this gas, to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, your breathing is going to be that bit faster and harder. And it's how you Mm -hmm. breathe during rest, which is going to influence how you breathe during physical exercise. So one of the one of the protocols I brought in with the, the 400 meter sprinter were as follows. Now it's pretty tough and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everybody. I'd have them do some of their sprints with their mouth closed for the first 360 meters. And I stood in the 40 meter line. And at the 40 meter line from the finish, when they seen me, they had to exhale and hold their breath for the last 40 minutes. Sorry, the last 40 meters. I was like, wow, man, that's crazy. 40 minutes. That's an intense, intense practice. How many survived? Um, We did it because I suppose fatigue is going to set in at the last 10% of the race. And 10% of 400 meters gives you 40. And that's when we added the extra load. So what exactly Mm -hmm. happens now? What I would say to people is if you're prone to anxiety or panic disorder or severe Any severe medical issues, don't try long breath holds because they're quite a stressor. And there is a balance to what what do you want to do? And at what point does a good stress become a bad stress? But listen to your body and start off gentle and build it up. So, for example, if you're not pregnant, you're relatively young and you're in good health. Practice this in your sitting room or whatever room in the house. Take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold and walk 15 to 20 paces holding your breath. And do that two or three times. And after doing a warm-up of two or three easy breath tolls of 15 to 20 paces, with a minute's rest in between each, then take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold your nose, and start jogging holding your breath, and then go into a fast jog, and even go into a run holding your breath. And keep relaxing into your body as you hold your breath, and keep going until you feel a relatively strong air hunger. And at the end, then resume breathing. But instead of taking this big gasp of breath, minimize your breathing for about 15 seconds, which is about six breaths or so. And that will help to prolong the hypoxic hypercapnic response. And I suppose, Jay, if somebody was to ask what exactly is happening when you're doing that, I don't know if anybody knows fully, but here are a few sure. things that are happening. One is as you hold your breath, your cells continue to extract oxygen from the blood, but you've stopped breathing it. You've stopped breathing. Mm-hmm. So you're not replenishing oxygen. So as a result, your blood oxygen saturation is dropping. This is forcing the body to make adaptations, including an improved buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartment. So we have buffers which are designed to neutralize acids. So say, for example, hydrogen ions are implicated in causing fatigue in an athlete. So what causes physical fatigue? Generally, hydrogen ion is what's taught to be, you know, a main contributory factor to that. Mm -hmm. When you deliberately put the body into a hypoxic state, you're forcing the body to adapt. And it is taught that those adaptations is the increased buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartment, which in turn will delay lactic acid and fatigue. Now, in comparison to a sprint with your mouth open, which is tough, or a sprint with your mouth closed, which is even tougher, you could do a breath hold in your sitting room and you could have a stronger effect in stimulating anaerobic glycolysis but less trauma. Now, I think there's also another thing in terms of the brain because as you do a breath hold, 
and your blood oxygen saturation is dropping and your carbon dioxide is increasing. You're disturbing the blood acid base balance, but your brain is also getting signaling that you're pushing you're pushing the, the, the body into that almost a, a severe training, but it's not necessarily severe, but it could be sure. causing a, a setting of the central governor that you're telling mm-hmm. the brain that the body can push it a little bit harder without overdoing it. And right. I think there's a psychological thing because suffocation is a very primordial fear, especially for some people. And that's why I would say to people is go with it easy. And literally you're doing a long breath hold. And it's almost that you have to surrender to the feeling of suffocation and it's training you to be able to deal with stress. Now, another mm. aspect which is going on, when you do that long breath hold, you do actually have increased blood flow to the brain. Another mm. aspect that it will help to open up your nose. You're also adding an extra load onto your breathing muscles because during the breath hold, you will have involuntary contractions of the diaphragm because the brain is continuing to send increased stimulus to breathe or increased impulses to breathe to resume right. breathing. But obviously you're stopping breathing. Patrick, I'm curious. One thing, sorry to stop you there. Uh, I've heard this question before. I'm actually very curious to your response. A lot of people have asked me, they said, they'll say something to the extent of, you start to feel those contractions that are happening within the diaphragm. You have all of this, um, uh, this desire to breathe at that time from an evolutionary perspective, like is your body seems like it's just trying to cause you to survive, like to keep, to keep on going. Why is it that we should fight against that? Like, why should we train something different than what our body is naturally trying to tell us to do in order to survive? Well, how do you respond to that question? I think if you go down to any swimming pool and you look at a a group of kids in there, young children, and you'll see them throwing their diving sticks down into the bottom of the pool and going in after it. And these kids will stay underwater. When they come up, they're pretty much gasping for breath. And the kids love it. I remember that as a kid. And even, you know, when our own kids are doing it, I've seen my own child do it. And other kids, especially when when I go to the States, the kids are swimming younger. There's just something, I think, there's... I don't know if it's to surrender, but there's a feeling of calmness during the breath hold and also mm. the mind will stop thinking. Yeah. Here's a question though. What forces us to resume breathing? So at some point, the air hunger gets quite strong that we literally have to let go. And nobody has the answer, but one researcher by the name of Parks in 2012 looked into this. And in his opinion, it's the discomfort signals coming from the diaphragm to the brain determinates the breath hold. So when we're when when we are doing breath holding, the more you can relax into the diaphragm and bring that feeling of relaxation to the diaphragm, you will be able to prolong the breath hold. And the other thing that I would say, Jay, is that there's nothing extreme in these breath holds. And touch wood, in 20 years, we haven't had somebody pass out as a result of holding the breath. Now, I want to show a difference here. That's why I'm actually really surprised by that one because I feel like if you have some really like competitive athlete or like high performer, I could just see them too just being like, I'm going to do this for as long as I can. And the next thing you know, the body's just like, ah, no, nope, and they pass out. So I'm surprised you guys haven't had anybody pass out in all <laughs> yeah, these years. But we don't want it to happen because, you know, we right. do breath tolling during physical movement because I think. If we're doing, if we're looking to improve sports performance, I don't necessarily see the point of lying down on the ground doing long breath holds because Mm. the individual on a sports field is not necessarily lying down. The individual is doing physical movement. And the other thing about physical movement is that 
as the air hunger increases, we have the athletes in, increase the intensity of movement so that we're matching mm. air hunger with increased movement. One might ask them, well, how come you could pass out by doing hyperventilation and breath tolling, but you don't necessarily pass out when you're doing breath tolling while running? Generally, the point at which you can pass out is when your blood oxygen saturation drops to below 60% and definitely below 50%. If you have normal breathing and then you hold your breath and you start doing physical movement, carbon dioxide is going to increase quite quickly in the blood. And carbon dioxide is also driving that air hunger and that need to breathe. So because of the increase of carbon dioxide, you're not going to hold your breath for as long. In mm. comparison to somebody who's lying on their back and hyperventilating for, say, 20 or 30 breaths, blowing off so much carbon dioxide to deplete the alarm to breathe, and then they exhale and they hold their breath, and they will feel that they can hold their breath for two to three minutes because they don't feel a sensation to breathe because they have depleted carbon dioxide during the, the hyperventilation. Because mm -hmm. then that they are holding their breath for two to three minutes, it gives sufficient time for their blood oxygen saturation to go to very low levels. And once the blood oxygen saturation is going below 60% or 50%, this is where there's a risk of passing out. So this is why, for example, never to do hyperventilation and breath toning prior to get into water. Um, right. And also never do hyperventilation and then hold your breath and go for a jog. Anytime mm -hmm. that you do breath holding as part of physical movement, it's very important to have normal breathing because at least then yeah. with your CO2 intact, that your body is knowing when to let go um, based on CO2 and the signaling then from the diaphragm. Now, I don't know if this answers this question, Jay, because like, there's another aspect of this is how would you ramp up before a game? Yep. You know, you're going to have athletes who they're overly stressed. I had a, a podcast with Roger Ruge, Ruge, and he works a lot with, with police in the United States, and he's a former police officer. And he spoke that he says, and I'm just giving you this example of you will have, say, a police officer getting going to a situation and the police officer is driving and he described the car going at 100 miles an hour. The siren is blaring. The, the officer is in the car. They're driving 100 miles an hour. They're all ramped up. Their breathing rate is fast. Heart rate is increased. And they haven't even got to the situation. What happens when they get to the situation? Like in order, in, you could even ask the question like, what these officers need to do is to be able to downregulate, not to upregulate. They're already ramped up and they're already in that state of hypervigilance. And this then mm -hmm. can be a recipe, of course, for making mistakes, unfortunately. Now, in the sports mm -hmm. world, it's almost that you will have many different people going into a game. Some are feeling relaxed. They need to be ramped up, but some are feeling highly stressed. They need to be maybe brought down. And normally yeah. what we do with athletes is, and I used to do it for myself with public presentations, I would spend a half an hour, first of all, if I was in a big room and I'm due to talk, number one is I don't want to talk to anybody before the event. I will hide. I don't care what they think of me. And I will sit in the corner <laughs> and I will do what you got to do. And they think I'm a total weirdo, but that's fine. I sit in the corner and I will close my eyes and I will bring my attention inwards. And I'm not doing it to show anybody that I'm doing it. No, no, no. It's not about that. I'm doing it because I want to conserve my energy. I will yeah. bring my attention inwards and I will literally focus on the breath. 
and take a very soft breath in through my nose and a really relaxed and a prolonged and gentle breath out. And mm-hmm. I will do it for up to a half an hour. I've even done it for as much as an hour. Mm. And it brings me into a lovely state of calm and composure, but also into present moment awareness. And it's true, yeah. the breath that, of course, I have some influence over the heart rate so that I can I can determine and change my state whatever way I want to be when I go out on stage. But I don't want mm-hmm. to go out too relaxed. So then I would do a couple of breath holes to increase blood flow to the yeah. brain. And then yeah. I might do, say, two easy breath holes and three or four stronger breath holes. And I will mm-hmm. walk out on stage with every cell of my body. Now, then when I was looking at, well, what, how would an athlete, because a lot of athletes, when you hear stories, and these could be recreational athletes to professional athletes, they can be so nervous going out to a game that they are getting sick in the bathroom from nerves. Now, that is hardly a recipe for good performance. How can you bring in changing states into the warm-up? Because every athlete knows that they need to warm up. And a warm-up is done at an intensity whereby you've got some control over breathing and especially nasal breathing. So mm-hmm. normally what I have athletes do then during the warm-up, whether whatever exercise they're doing as part of the warm-up, I have them do it with their mouth closed, breathing in and out through the nose. For part of it, I'll have them put their hands either side of their lower ribs. And as they're doing their warm-up, that as they breathe in, that they have lateral expansion and contraction of the diaphragm. Not by mm-hmm. taking these full big breaths, but basically by breathing low because of the connection between the diaphragm and the emotions to help down regulation. So we're bringing in techniques to help steady the nerves by incorporating it into the warm-up. Nose, low, and slow breathing. Breathing in for maybe four seconds and out for six seconds during the warm-up or whatever the individual can do. We do that for a period of time. We, you know, Nose breathing is very important because really what the warm-up is is also to prepare the muscles for increased work out on the field. Right. And one way to do that is to take into consideration the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. We know with physiology that when the muscle gets hotter, it generates, with an increase in temperature, hemoglobin will release oxygen more readily to that working muscle. At the same time, the working muscle is becoming hypercapnic, is generating carbon dioxide. So I'll just go through that again. A working muscle becomes hotter and generates more carbon dioxide. And those are the catalysts for the release of hemoglobin. So for hemoglobin to release oxygen to those working muscles. If we do our warm-up with the mouth closed, you're gradually increasing the temperature of the muscle so that more oxygen gets to that muscle. But in addition, when you do your warm-up with the mouth closed, you're increasing carbon dioxide in the blood, which is also causing a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. This is the Bohr effect, and more oxygen is getting to the muscle. But of right. course, you don't want your athlete going out too relaxed. So then we do a couple of easy breath tolls, and then we do four or five strong breath tolls. Now, another aspect of the five strong breath tolls is, of course, spleen contraction. And mm-hmm. this points back to the diving response that we as human beings have. And this is an innate, you know... Throughout our evolution, if one considers that we have evolved over millions of years, we have unique features as human beings. And it may be partly because we originated from the ocean, if, the, if that's the, the theory on it, or that we spent a lot of time getting our food from the seafloor, which required mm-hmm. repetitive dives. 
Now, sure. our spleen yeah. is our blood bank. It's located, it's an organ that's located under the left side of the diaphragm. It contains 8% of our red blood cells. But the quality of the blood in the spleen, 80% is what's called hematocrit, which is very richly dense, packed red blood cells. And when you do a breath hold, your spleen releases red blood cells into circulation. And it's oxygen that's carried by red blood cells, so you can improve your aerobic capacity prior to an event by doing five breath holds prior to the event. So I mm. see a warm-up and breath work as integral. And I'm not sure if I should be using the yes. word breath work because people often associate mm. breath work as hyperventilation and holotropic breathing, and that's not what we would be doing. Sure. But yeah. it's just understanding the physiology of when you bring breathing exercises into a warm-up. You're going with nose, light, slow, and low, and that will help to steady nerves. Now, some athletes, when I say to them, it will help to steady nerves, they say, I've no nerves. I don't care about that. I don't want to know about that. So I don't even mention, they will. <laughs> I don't even mention steadying nerves, but I'll talk about right. changing states. So sure. we use that to change states. And then mm -hmm. we do a couple of easy breath holds just to get them out of the, the relaxation response into a more stress response. Mm -hmm. And then we do five strong breath holds because you have maximum spleen contraction with five strong breath holds. Now, mm, interesting. at the end of the five strong breath holds, it takes about a minute for carbon dioxide to clear from the blood. So don't ever worry about increased acidosis going out onto the field. It will be mm -hmm. cleared by the time you start off. And when yeah. you go out onto the pitch, I want athletes to go out with their attention dispersed throughout their body to, to go out mm. into the game with every cell of their body. And right. it's a tremendous place to be mentally. And this is where yeah. breathing, breathing crosses the line. It's almost that it's bridging the mind and the body. The body is about physical right. performance. The mind is about mental performance. And the breath is the bridge. Yeah, beautiful. I, I love it. I think it all comes down to this concept of immense physiological control. And we are able to tell the body and communicate with the body what we want it to do at any given moment. And that is a special skill uh, and, and something that is attainable and learnable by every single individual is to be able to control our state at any time at will. And that's something that I teach a lot of my athletes as well is that no matter what your experience is subjectively, like if you wanted to give it a different message, your body, that is your brain, a different message, you can do so. And we can do so via the way that we breathe, um, either the pacing through breath holds, like you mentioned, there are so many different ways of doing this, but at first it's knowing kind of like, what do I need in this moment? And then what will I need in preparation for when I head out onto the field or onto the pitch? And so I, I, I love that your explanation of that. I wanted to ask you one thing and to clarify, you said kind of the one of the things that you do at the end of kind of what we can call, we'll just say so-called breathwork practice for sports performance is you'll do five strong breath holds. Is that for maximal um, spleen contraction? For that, when you say five strong breath holds, are you referring to like max capacity breath holds to where you're like, I, I got to tap out? Or how do you, how do you um, put like a definition around strong breath hold? For me, a strong breath hold is that you're holding your breath for as long as you can but you should mm -hmm. be able to recover breathing through your nose within two to three breaths. And cool. also, if you find that you need to go to the bathroom straight after a breath told you, no, you've pushed it. Your body has told you that, yes, yeah. you're going into yeah. a stress response. Now, it can be normal that the legs go jelly. And the reason mm -hmm. that the legs go jelly may be due to diaphragm fatigue. 
because when the diaphragm mm. gets tired, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the yeah. diaphragm. So I think I think I, I think as well, Jay, that I think people need to find really their own space in terms of doing breathing exercise and start off gently and never feel that you have to push this to the point of extreme. And it's not about that. Right. You know, you're you're just gently tapping into it. And the other thing is to start doing this during training. Don't mm-hmm. wait until the competition and right. practice this. You know, you could do five reps of breath holds twice daily. And once mm-hmm. you're once you're got good recovery, you're not going to overdo it. Like this isn't like, say, for example, there are some breath work exercises and long breath tolls, static apneas, etc. And it's advised that you do it every second day. But if you're doing these are more moderate to strong breath tolls that you could be doing five reps once a day, or you could even be doing five reps twice a day. No, that's, that's, that's great. I think there's a lot of clarifying things that you indicated within your, your, um, you know, your, your talk just now. I think that there's, if one thing that I think that you and I could just kind of clarify even more so is that there are a lot of individuals who get very confused because they hear like, when I go out, you know, onto the field, let's say, uh, should I be like really sympathetically high and active like on that end? Or should I really be like low? And I think again, kind of the clarifying statement here and, and correct me if I'm wrong on what you said, I know I kind of have my idea is that really, honestly, there should be this really good ability to tap into either one to balance it out. Um, if we're too uh, off onto one side or to the other, that can actually hold detrimental effects. If we're too overly stimulated or hypervigilant, then that can actually give us tunnel vision. It can ha- uh, cause us to really not see the field, if you will. Whereas like if we're too parasympathetic, parasympathetically driven or too relaxed, then that also holds its disadvantages to really amp up the body and system to perform well. So I think is that is that kind of a good clarifying statement is that the idea here is to strive maybe not even necessarily for balance but more so for the ability to tap in to whatever state you need at any time you need it i think it's hugely important you know in terms of achieving that that flow state and we all know when we achieve that flow state because it's a wonderful place to be it's almost that it's euphoric it's a natural high and all great masters achieve this people who are at the top of their game they can achieve it now it would be interesting to know can they tap into this at will? And I believe it can be tapped into, and I can believe Mm -hmm. that it can be reproduced. My own experiences, and I don't know whether people say to me that it's not that you're necessarily bringing your attention fully into the present moment, but you're more directing your attention. And I'm not sure because if I go into a situation and I've done my preparation and I do a combination of the relaxation and the stressor, and I think you're right that we are looking to bring into balance we don't want to go out too high, but we don't want to go out too low. That just before I go out, I will, I will literally bring my attention just into the top of the back of the head and hold my attention there. And I find then that I'm almost very much in the present moment, not thinking about it. Because I remember when I started off this 30 years ago for myself, I'd be thinking about following my breath. I didn't necessarily have my attention on my breath, but I would be thinking, oh, there's my breath coming in and there's my breath coming out. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily about thinking about being in the moment. It's not necessarily about thinking about having your attention on the breath. It's about right. pushing the critical mind aside, but effortlessly. Yeah. And yeah. whether this, you know, this is something that I was fortunate to come across it. Many people are fortunate to come across it, of course, 
And it has to be a combination of both changing your physiology, improving your sleep, but also being aware. And when I'm talking about aware, I'm talking about the awareness to be able to hold your attention in in the body or the breath or the present moment. But tapping Mm -hmm. into that, it is a tremendous recipe because we are all human beings. And there's always a time whereby we get a little bit nervous about something. We might be talking to somebody who could be, say, for example, if I'm working with, you know, household superstar in terms of music, of course you feel it because you you don't want to kind of mess up. So you feel it. But I will always use breathing exercises that I can remain calm and composed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how many times, Jay, do we need to use that in our daily life? And yet very few people understand Yes. Yeah. Going into, you know, dealing with customers, dealing with family, you know, like everywhere. We need to be able to know how can I change my breathing to upregulate or downregulate. And probably a simple way to think of it this way. If you want to upregulate, there's two two main ways to do it in terms of breathing. One is to hyperventilate. Breathe in hard Mm -hmm. and breathe out hard, especially when you have a hard and fast exhalation. That's an upregulator, and that's a stressor. It's the speed of the exhalation. When it's fast, when it's hard, it's a stressor. And also a long breath hold, it's a stressor. So those are the two main ways to upregulate. But then how do you downregulate? We have to think Mm -hmm. of the exhalation. We have to be thinking of nose. We have to be thinking of breathing low, which can stimulate the vagus nerve. We have to be Mm -hmm. thinking of breathing slow, especially the exhalation. So when we have a fast exhalation, it's a stressor. When we have a slow and prolonged and relaxed exhalation, it's a down regulator. And breathing light also by increasing carbon dioxide. So breathing light to take less air into the body, carbon dioxide increases in the blood, and it's stimulating the vagus nerve. And I'm not sure precisely how that is happening. And that was a question that came in to me this week or maybe last week recently enough. Mm -hmm. Because more often than not, the biochemistry is forgotten about in terms of breathing. And when I say to my students, you know, if you want to find out if this is changing your states, sit down for a few minutes. Take a very soft and light, gentle breath coming into your nose. And have a really relaxed and a slow and gentle breath out. And take a very, very soft, almost imperceptible breath in through your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out, underbreed for two to three minutes and check if there's any change in the watery saliva in the mouth. Because if you've got an increased watery saliva in the mouth, you know that your body is prepared for the digestion of food. You know that mm-hmm. you've activated the relaxation response. Yep. I think everybody right now is trying it. I know I was just <laughs> sitting there tapping into my breath. So <laughs> great work. Mission accomplished. But no, it's 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 true. And I love how like it's it, this is something again that is readily available and it's easy to do. And for me, and I think for most people that actually actively practice this, is that it works every time. Like what medication or what supplement or what other thing out there that people can buy and purchase works every single time, kind of the way it's anticipated. Uh, that is to me the brilliance of breath work, of HRV biofeedback, of vagal stimulation with breath work. Like it's just an incredible mechanism that is readily available and it always works. So it's 
it's just awesome stuff. So Patrick, I think that was a great summary. I really appreciate you diving deep into how we can utilize good autonomic control via breath work in order to enhance sports performance. And I'm sure that was quite valuable to our listeners. So thanks a lot for that. And we'll transition now. So if anybody again is new to YouTube, new to our podcast, this is the portion of the video or the podcast where Patrick and I were going to answer your questions that you submit to us. You can do this on many ways. You can do this by sending us an email podcast at hanuhealth.com. Follow us at hanuhealth on Instagram and send us a direct message on there. Anyway, if we like what you have to ask and we comment on it and we answer it here, uh, then we again, thank you for that. But also too, we want to send you some goodies. Uh, We want to send you one of Patrick's signed books, Atomic Focus, which is incredible. We want to send you some Myotape, which is Patrick's company as well, who creates the best mouth tape that you could ever imagine out there. Something that I use every single night. We also have some Hanu Health goodies like our bottles and stress balls and die cut stickers. All this great stuff we'll send to you. Just reach out if we call your name and your question. Reach out to to us on Instagram, podcast at Hanu Health, our email, and we'll send it to you. So with that said, Patrick, you ready to jump into our listener submitted questions? Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right, let's let's do it. Cool. So let's start with question number one, which comes from Kristen. And what Kristen asks is, she says, you guys talk a lot about breathing to enhance relaxation and a parasympathetic response, but what about breathing preparation to engage in an activity like sports performance? Is it okay to use those techniques? Now, the one thing I'll have to mention is that we really just thoroughly covered that. So I don't think we're going to need to spend much time on this one, but I did reach out to Kristen and, and, and she clarified one thing to me that we kind of hit on, but maybe we can just at least talk about it for another few minutes or so. And this is this concept of like how important is it to engage in something like cyclical hyperventilation prior to engaging in a sports performance type uh, activity. And so cyclical hyperventilation, when clarified, is more like Wim Hof style-esque breathing prior to engaging in sports performance. Now, we talked about the idea of like, you know, again, utilizing both strategies of nasal light breathing during warmups, you know, moderate breath holds, and then more stronger breath holds as well. But like, is there any advantage to doing cyclical hyperventilation on top of all of that? Or are we kind of just adding in too many variables here? I think a number of things need to be considered. I wouldn't necessarily, if it was me personally, I wouldn't do it prior to an event because of the reduced blood flow and possible symptoms of lightheadedness that I would be experiencing from it. Um, mm-hmm. I remember going into an exam, Jay, back in the day, just going back a long, long time. And I was highly strung because a chronic mouth breather and fast breather and upper chest breather. And I took a walk, a deliberate walk. But during that walk, I took fast, full, big breaths during the walk. And I walked mm-hmm. into the exam hall and I was absolutely all over the place. So I think hyperventilation can affect people differently. And some people get a lot out of it, but some necessarily don't. It's yeah. probably just a little bit riskier before an event. Now, of course, it is a stressor. And it's something that you can do lying down. And two aspects here would be is that you're better off with a a bolt score of above 25 seconds. You will be more resilient Mm. to cope with the effects of vasoconstriction. Because bear in mind that when you hyperventilate, your blood vessels do constrict. It's a normal feature from hyperventilation. And also you'll have a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. 
Now, there are many benefits from it. Um, there are many people have said it has been absolutely wonderful. I just think that I think like that we need to treat breathing exercises a little bit like going to a gym. There are different breathing, there are different breathing exercises, and there's different workouts in the gym, and they all have their own purpose. But it's understanding which one suits you better, and sure. how far to push it to the point that you're making progress, but not to the point that it's it's too much of a stressor. And mm-hmm. yeah, so the I you know I wouldn't necessarily do the hyperventilation prior to the event, but I would do the hyperventilation when I have some time. And I can relax yeah. into it and I don't feel any pressure. But those tools yeah. that we typically use there, they can be incorporated into the warm up. And it's really a strategy, not just about changing your breathing, but also to get out of your head, to change yeah. the headspace. Indeed. Yeah. No, I, I like that. That's a good, you know, uh, kind of additive to what we've already mentioned. Uh, I think that that's a smart and intelligent thing. The last thing you want to do is kind of mistakenly ramp your system up too much prior to an event and not be able to downregulate it very easily or in time, or kind of get that, like you mentioned, those physiological effects of the lightheadedness, the fatigue that could set in afterwards. It's like, are you willing to take that risk? And maybe if it's something that you're used to practicing on your daily routine, but if you've never done it before and you decide, hey, let me just throw this in, eh, that's pretty risky. And I just tend to be more risk adverse. So I wouldn't do that. So I I appreciate your response there. Kristen, I hope that everything that we said prior and that Patrick talked about prior to this, plus this was helpful, um, but great question. So let's move on to question number two, which comes from Meredith. Meredith asks, I tend to practice yoga daily, and I like the idea of trying more formal breath work with my practice. Do you guys have any tips on how to integrate breath work into yoga? So I find this to be a really great question. And the reason being is because number one, I love yoga. Number two, I am all about like, how can I kill as many birds with one stone as possible? Because I value time and I have a lot going on. So there's a lot of people who ask me kind of like, when do I do a lot of my breath work? And I'm like, a lot times is in the sauna when I'm stretching and doing yoga pose. I'm doing like three or four things all at once. I'm very mindful about everything that I'm doing, but I'm, uh, but I'm doing them. And so I'm curious kind of how you coach people, Patrick, or what you have to say about integrating um, just breath work in general, and then maybe how you incorporate some of your practices in there. Because one thing to clarify too, especially if people are not um, maybe as aware of what yoga actually is. Yoga is not just about you know stretching and manipulating the body and contortionism. Like, there are a lot of components to yoga, and one central component to yoga is indeed breath work. So I'm curious what you have to say on this one. I think yoga has an enormous potential to adopt breathing exercises because so many mm. people attend yoga to help deal with stress and anxiety and panic disorder and respiratory issues. And oftentimes the people who are going to yoga, they don't necessarily want to go to a gym. They don't like getting onto a treadmill, which is fair enough. And they're using yoga as a physical workout. There's a couple of points in this, Jay, because I suppose if we broke down breathing to three dimensions, the biochemical dimension, which is focusing on improving tolerance to carbon dioxide, depth of breathing, focusing on the biomechanics and also resonance frequency breathing, changing the case of breathing to stimulate the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. And then any posture or movement in yoga, then you can do, you could focus on some movement and bring in exercises to target the biochemistry during that movement. 
So say, for example, you're doing a really, really slow movement. And as you're doing that really, really slow movement, you have such subtle breathing in through the nose. And then coming out of the movement, you have such a subtle, relaxed and a slow, gentle exhalation to underbreathe during the movement so that you're not just focusing on bringing your awareness into movement, but also onto the breath. And by reducing breathing volume, it will help to improve circulation and it will help to improve oxygen delivery to those working muscles. And also, by increasing blood flow to the brain, it can have a very calming effect. It can also help to open up the airways. And also, it will help then to lengthen the individual's breath toll time. And by reducing their ventilatory response to carbon dioxide, their respiratory rate then will go slower during the day. So Mm -hmm. I often Mm -hmm. think of, you know, you, you might have a beginner to yoga, and they're doing yoga because they want to do something beneficial for them. But they are breathing fast and hard with the upper chest. And the yoga yeah. instructor might be asking them to take these full big breaths. But this, this student doesn't need, they don't need to be taking full big breaths. What they need is, they need exercises to target the biochemistry to improve their tolerance to CO2. Because when you have a better tolerance to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, the respiratory rate naturally slows down. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that we can change the respiratory rate by focusing solely on the respiratory rate. But if we mm-hmm. focus on minute ventilation and we reduce minute ventilation and the body adapts to reduction in minute ventilation, the respiratory rate will naturally slow down. And we can mm-hmm. also assess a beginner student in terms of breathing and yoga to an advanced student in yoga in terms of breathing by measuring their breath toll time. And this was right. traditionally how it was done. Because mm-hmm. an experienced student of yoga had naturally a long, long breath hold time. And they could suspend their breath for a prolonged period of time. They could reduce their respiratory rate down to maybe th- three breaths per minute, two breaths per minute, or even one breath per minute. Now, if you have an advanced yoga practitioner, they are able to breathe in really subtly for maybe 20 seconds and breathe out very subtly for 40 seconds, that individual has mastery over the breath. And Mm. I like the point Mm -hmm. that you make that yoga, it's not just about movement. It's actually mastery of the mind. But how do you get mastery of the mind unless you have mastery over the breath? So then, for example, then, and I think, like, we have our own yoga teacher training, um, in terms of we have Anastasis, who is an experienced, he used to be um, special forces. And then he worked mm-hmm. in finance. And I think as part of his karma to, re, to repay into society, he now teaches yoga, which is absolutely wonderful. And he's brought, yeah, breathing, he's brought breathing exercises in with that. And it's just really the basic understanding. It's not that we want to change any of the asanas or anything like that, but it's about tweaking how to and how to guide breathing exercises during the movement. So mm-hmm. some breathing exercises you can bring into some postures in terms of focusing on the biochemistry. And there are other postures then you're going to be focusing on the biomechanics. You're having mm-hmm. the, the, the student breathe slow and breathe low. And then you could actually then deliberately with the instructor guiding the student to breathing in maybe for five seconds and breathing out for five seconds and breathing in for five seconds and out for five seconds to target the autonomic nervous system. So in Mm -hmm. actual fact, 
I would see yoga in the future as being a sequence of exercises for the body, but mm-hmm. also a sequence of exercises for the breath, which is combined with <laughs> the movement. And sure. with that, then we are helping to train the mind. There is an enormous potential here. And, yeah. you know, I don't want ever to criticize. Sometimes when I say something about breathing and yoga, people kind of come come to me saying, well, you, you know, it's it's about taking the full big breaths or whatever. Our, our yoga instructors actually have it right. And we've done our own little research because this is an area that I'm writing about at the moment. The next book that, mm. that I'm going to, um, I'm writing with Anastasis, it's a book called Breathing. It's Breathing for Yoga. And it's literally just marrying those two together. And we did very simple research. We went in on YouTube and we looked at the breathing techniques that were being instructed by yoga instructors. And Mm -hmm. seven out of 10 involved taking these fuller and bigger breaths. Now, the, the only issue with taking fuller and bigger breaths is that it could be sacrificing the biochemistry. That if you're intentionally asking your students to take these full big breaths, and if you can hear people breathe inside the yoga studio, if you can hear people breathe during light movement, there is a risk that the people are breathing too much air and blowing off too much carbon dioxide, which in turn is increasing their sensitivity to the gas CO2. And this is the opposite to the original um, development of yoga because Whatever information is out there, there's a book by Robin Rottenberg called Restoring Prana, and she's a yoga instructor based in Falls City in Seattle. Yoga, mm-hmm. or sorry, Robin had asthma and she had chronic fatigue syndrome, if I can remember correctly, or sleep apnea. So it was either asthma and sleep apnea or asthma and chronic fatigue syndrome. I can't remember exactly. She came across the Buteco method and she started putting it into practice. And then a couple of years later, then she came over to Ireland and she was here for two weeks and we were going through all of the exercises. And then she went and she wrote a book. She spent many, many months researching back to the original yoga as best she could go back to find out mm-hmm. when breathing when breathing was developed in yoga, what was the intention? And she kept on coming across this word subtle. Now, if we think about the subtlety of the breath subtlety if you were to breathe subtle it's the same as breathe light because Mm -hmm. subtlety implies that you're having restraint of breathing control of breathing in other words that you're you're exerting some willpower to take less air into your body or to slow it down or to suspend the breath but that will be conservation of the breath that will reduce the sensitivity to carbon dioxide and i think in some way This has been lost throughout the centuries. And I think it's really important. It's time to get it back. And it's just time to to explore it, like to look at the potential of this. It is enormous. And also the other thing that I would make, Jay, is I know you're dying to get back in, but this is the problem. You just can't get a word in edgeways with me here now today. I'm in flying form. We have to take breathing off the mat you know, mm-hmm. I can imagine going in as a teenager if I was going to a yoga student or a yoga instructor. And if the yoga instructor was absolutely wonderful, showing me how to open up my nose, showing me how to open up my airways, showing me how to improve my blood circulation and bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system. That's wonderful. But how about the yoga instructor also telling me how to breathe outside of the studio? How should I be breathing when I go for a walk? 
How should I be breathing yeah. during sleep? And how should I breathe if I get into a difficult situation? Just as we mm -hmm. spoke about earlier on. And, you know, I had a talk about three hours ago with a group of doctors. In fairness, doctors, it is a very, in many instances, a stressful occupation. And sure. there are so many demands on them. They have 15 minutes mm -hmm. to see a patient changing states we were talking about and i use the words of dr rahul when he's he was a brain surgeon and i know we brought this up before mm -hmm. that he said when he gets into a tricky situation the first thing he does is he prevents himself from hyperventilating and we should all know that and when the yoga yeah. instructor is teaching that to their students whenever their student gets into a tricky situation the first thing you do is draw your attention inwards onto the breath don't breathe hard and fast because you activate the mm -hmm. flight or flight response Bring your attention mm -hmm. inwards. Take that soft breath in through your nose and the really relaxed and a slow and gentle breath out. And you're yes. literally telling the brain that everything is okay. And the brain then will send signals of calm accordingly. Yeah, no, indeed. I love this idea of taking the skills that you learn and are facilitated in a yoga class and making them translative, making them transfer to our everyday life and well-being. And that is such a valuable and sometimes overlooked and misunderstood skill that needs to be facilitated within the context of, of yoga classes. And it's interesting because I think that most uh, yoga instructors, at least the ones that I've interacted with and I know, like they, they fully embrace that idea that yes, everything that we're learning here within the context of this yoga practice or this class needs to be translated like we learn it here so that it then translates into our normal everyday lives. But I think sometimes it's just not explicitly like uh, taught within the context of the class. It's really just kind of more implicitly taught. But I think it's time to be explicit and to say, here's how we breathe within the context of yoga practice. And here are the skills that we take with us um, so that when you get in the car after this class, even though you're zinned out right now, you get in the car and someone cuts you off in traffic or you get derailed on your way home for whatever reason, or you walk in the door and your you know spouse yells at you or your kids yell at you. Like, what are you going to do then? Because that's, that's where the crap hits the fan, right? That's real life. Like the yoga class, you know, the hour, hour and a half yoga class is great, but it's it's really a controlled environment. How can we take the aspects that we learn in a controlled environment and then make them a part of our everyday life and well-being? And if we put those concepts into practice, like we're going to make more resilient beings. Like that's just what's going to inevitably happen. So I really appreciate kind of your highlight there. One other comment that I'll make too before we, we wrap things up today uh, is I have found so many individuals, and this is more from a research perspective base perspective, but also to working with clientele, so many individuals that have actually monitored heart rate variability when they're engaged in yoga. And it's really interesting to watch the different fluctuations that occur. So when someone is engaging in a little bit more, let's say, physically demanding yoga class, as you would expect, heart rate variability drops. However, one of the most interesting things is that when they're done with that class, compared to their baseline prior to that class, their heart rate variability skyrockets upward. Like it's incredible. So it's almost like that hormesis effect and then engaging in all the other types of practices that are involved in yoga, everything combined leads to this vagal resilience and this stress resilience that manifests in higher heart rate variability. And then during practice, one of the things that I've seen that has been probably the most compelling 
source of data is that when people are engaging in child's pose, especially, and they are really focusing on their breath, or um, I think that's the biggest one is when they're engaged in child's pose, is that I have seen people's heart rate variability skyrocket. I mean, the co-founder of our company, Hanu, John, he says that that's his go-to. Like if he knows he wants to increase uh, vagal sensitivity and increase heart rate variability, like he'll get into a child's pose and he'll slow down his breathing. He'll make it light. He'll make it quiet. He uses those oxygen advantage type breathing patterns and it will just skyrocket. And so uh, for me, like it has become a non-negotiable that each day I have to incorporate yoga into some, some area of my routine and daily habit. And always a part of that is breath work. And always a part of that is mindfulness of breathing because it just reaps so much benefit. So I know, uh, I, I know that that's one that if people aren't engaging in, they really should, uh, because it is to me, uh, I was always resistant to the, to the concept of yoga felt a little bit hippie ish for me, new agey for me. And then my wife like begged and begged that I just go and do it because she was always into yoga. She's been doing it basically all of her life. And you know, me as a male too, there was kind of some stigma like, Oh man, you know, big, burly men. We don't do that, which is so funny to like think back now, but this was, you know, back in college. So we're talking 20 years ago now. And I look back at that and I think, man, I missed out on so many great years of practice because when I went the first time with my wife to practice yoga, like it was, and it sounds a little bit like hyperbole, but it was pretty life-changing for me. It was like, whoa, there is a lot in this practice. And I will have to attribute uh, my practice of yoga to how I kind of found more formal breath work. I found yoga first and then breath work was built into it. And then I, you know, came across that concept of breath work. It's not really, you know, used much in yoga or at least it wasn't when I first started. It is kind of now. And, uh, and it led me down the path I'm on. So, which is, which is pretty cool. So again, all of my pitch to people who aren't engaging in yoga, that's, it's, uh, it's a great practice that if you aren't doing it, you should consider it. So yeah, absolutely. All right, Patrick. Well, I know it's getting about that time. So before we wrap it up today, we'll do what we always do, which is read one of the amazing reviews that somebody left us on the Apple podcast platform. And people ask about that, by the way. So if you're watching on YouTube or if you're watching or you're listening on our podcast, people always ask me, like, can you submit via Spotify, via these other mechanisms? You can give us ratings on there, which is great. But we read the review because the review is the only place or sorry, Apple podcast is the only place you can leave a review. So go on to Apple podcasts and the Hanu health platform and write us a five-star review. If Patrick and I read it here on the podcast or on YouTube and you hear your name, you know, you wrote it, reach out to us podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and address, and we'll send you all those goodies that I mentioned earlier. So Patrick, let's, let's read this thing. Sound good? Sounds good, Jake. Cool, man. So this one comes from B M A Y T A B. So I'm not even going to, or actually B M A Y R A B. So, you know, it's Apple podcast names. Um, they said they titled this one of the absolute best podcast. Dr. J's podcast truly helps you to breathe better and stress less. It is a fun, engaging and packed full of information podcast. My husband recommended it to me and I feel fortunate that he did. So again, if that's your podcast review, thanks so much for leaving that for us. I mean, it's great kind words and we really um, cherish those things. We truly do. Uh, so again, reach out to us. Um, yeah. Awesome review. Great stuff. It's always good to get, you know, and I think there's something very important as well because it's, it's almost that it's, we know this information and sometimes that it becomes second nature to you, but you don't necessarily 
always think of the the effect that it's having on the person who's listening. So this is what makes the whole journey rewarding as well, Jay. It truly is. It's a, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's very true. Like you and I have been immersed in this for years among years, decades among decades. And for some people, like it may be that the podcast they're listening to right now is the first time they have ever encountered anything regarding breath work or heart rate variability or stress resiliency as a term. It might be the first time. So we, I sometimes take that for granted. Um, and so it's reading reviews like that. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is good work that we're doing. Like I will continue. And I know you will to continue to beat this drum, you know, really kind of evolve as the science evolves and then relay as much practical and useful information that we can for people so that they can live the best possible life. Cause that's what we really want. So Totally in agreement with that, Patrick. Uh, all right, man. Well, we're going to close it out today. Um, so again, we're here every month, Q&A, uh, here on the Hanu Health Podcast. Patrick, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on again. Look forward to seeing you next month, my friend. Great stuff, Jay. That'll be, that's not too far away. So let's chat that's then. That's right. That's right. All right, everybody. Take care. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less. Oh,